Well, today's an exciting day uh, for me, and I guess I'll just introduce myself uh, as most of you came in uh, after I introduced myself. And I love the late service, right? It's everyone who cracks up, uh, wakes up at the crack of lunch, and uh, it's, it's just great. Uh, you're my kind of crowd, for sure. So, um, My name's Tony Sorcy. I'm a co-campus pastor here, along with Harry. And uh, Harry, I will call you next week and, and let you know. We'll go shopping together. It'll be great. Uh, yeah, I really appreciated getting to know Harry, and we, we've not we we've not wasted any time in giving each other a hard time. So I'm really I'm, I'm feeling the love there. But uh, today's an exciting day for me. Uh, my first message as a campus pastor here, and you guys need to know that I am very very excited uh, for this new season, not only in my life but also in the life of this church and this campus here. And I think it's just beginning to hit, hit me. You know, just how huge this is. This is this is a wild thing we're doing here. This is a big thing. It's a big deal for sure. And um, I wanted you to know on behalf of my family that uh, I truly appreciate all the love that my family's received from you folks here from the Cedar Lake campus. And I know Pam has felt that and the kids. And they had a, a, ton, of, a ton of fun here last week uh, being in the children's ministry and receiving love there. And so we're really, really appreciative of that. And we hope to reciprocate that love as well. Um, I'm, I'm here. I'm going to be around. I'll be here every Sunday. The bald, tattooed guy, that's me. And uh, I hope to reciprocate that love and get to know you folks as well. So, but I do ask that you please be patient with me as I try to remember names. I've been busy trying to friend a lot of you on Facebook, um, as many as, as I can. And Facebook is helpful for that. Names and faces, old church directories, not so much. Okay. Um, I've seen your old church directories here and trust me, they're just as bad as the one in Crown Point. So, uh, be encouraged by that. We all look ugly five years ago. It's just, yeah. It's like, oh gosh, man, I, I took that picture. They published that. That's, that's crazy. Uh, so for all of you that friended on Facebook, thank you for accepting my friend request. And I don't want to unfriend any of you, so that's working out well. Um, so yeah, it's, that's good. Let's keep it up. Just don't invite me to Farmville. Um, and no, I don't want to join your group, okay? So just put that, uh, put that out there. But uh, all joking aside, uh, I'm glad that God's placed me here uh, to be a part of this with you. And uh, I'm trusting that God will do a great work in us and through us here in Southwest Lake County. I was thinking about this week, I was thinking about my first message. And, and I, I don't say this to be slick or smart aleck at all. I thought I would just be, play it safe and preach Jesus. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to preach Christ this morning. I'm going to remind us of Christ. And I thought that my first message ought to be about what's of first importance, and that's Christ and him crucified. This is not a message about my vision or purpose for this church. I am a co-interim campus pastor at Bethel Cedar Lake. Co is that I need a babysitter, an older guy. And interim is that... And interim is that you might screw this up, so let's tag that on there. So... You guys, just, yeah, if you have any expectations of me, I'd really just lower those. That would really, really, really be great for me. <clears throat> but uh, I'm a co-interim campus pastor here at Bethel Church, Cedar Lake, and Bethel already has a vision and a purpose. Do you know what that is? Bethel already has a vision and purpose. It's this. Bethel Church exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ whose lives are all about him. To make disciples of Jesus Christ whose lives are all about him. And the greater vision of that is mission them. Where we want to see more and more of these all about him disciples emerge as we grow through multiple sites and multiple partnerships. That's the vision. That's the purpose of this campus, of this church that we're a part of. And my desire for this campus is Bethel's desire. That we would be about Jesus. And that as we follow Jesus, that we would be like him. And by the way, you need to know that this is the purpose and the vision of the Father's heart for all of those who are his as he has said that the purpose of salvation is that we be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, Romans eight twenty nine, and to grow to be like him, to live lives all about him. So this morning as a campus pastor and uh, as a campus that is going through much, much transition, I thought I would remind us all, remind us all of what is of first importance and to keep that at the center. And I know there are a lot of mixed feelings here in this room for a lot of us. I know that there are some here who are excited, on board, can't wait to see what happened. I'm in. Let's go. Let's do this. And uh, I feel your excitement, and I appreciate that. I also know that there are some of us in here who are kind of waiting to see what this is all about. What's this guy all about? What's this worship all about? What's this mission them thing? What's this merger? You're kind of waiting to see, sitting back and watching from a distance. 
I also know that there are some of us who are just confused. You don't know what to think. You don't know what to feel. All kinds of conversations and all kinds of things swirling, a bit of confusion. And I also know that there are some of us who are really hurting and seeing all this change. And I want to let all of you know that there's room for that here. There's room for that here. And as a campus pastor here, I want you all to know that I'm here. And I said it. I'm not going anywhere. And I welcome and invite the opportunity to be a friend to you and to pastor you and to walk with you in that. And it's a joy for me to be on this stage. And it's a joy for me to be asked to be in this position here. You know, we're all in transition. I feel the weight of this myself. My wife Pam and I, Pam, who's in the, the balcony, we live in Valparaiso in a house that we love, in a neighborhood that we love with neighbors that God has given us much favor with. We've been able to have much ministry with them. Uh, Non-Christian neighbors. My wife just went with a gal last night to the Saturday night service in Crown Point. And we love the schools. We love where we live. And God said, you're going back to Cedar Lake. And I said, let's go. Let's do it. House up for sale. It's been so for just a little over a week. And uh, I'm trusting God in that. All of us are going through transition. And I hate moving. Moving is terrible. The only thing worse than moving is shopping for a car. And that is so bad, right? And so in all this transition, God is moving us. He is moving us. And um, yeah, I, I have no idea what the future holds, but I'm trusting that God does. And I would hope that wherever you're at with this merger and all of this, that you would ultimately land there as well, trusting God. He is the one worth trusting in, not men, not a name, but God. And God is doing a great work here, and I believe in that, and I'm glad to be a part of it. So in light of it all, I want to encourage our hearts, encourage our hearts with grace this morning. And to do that, I want to preach Christ. And I want to remind us to keep Christ at the center. And to keep Christ at the center, I want to read a brief portion of Scripture written to another church that's in transition. So if you would, please stand with me, and we're going to read from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11, Paul writes this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born. He appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me, with me, whether then it was I or they. So we preached, and so you believe. Amen. You guys could be seated. Yesterday I was in a room of about 40 men, and we were studying uh, this doctrine of the Scriptures. And it was really cool to see four or five from the Cedar Lake campus come and join us there, or looking to, to join in on our men's leadership development program. And we were studying the Word We're studying this doctrine of the scriptures, this inspired and errant authoritative word from God, this revelation from him. God has not left us in the dark, friends. He has spoken to us. He has revealed to us himself and what he would have us to do and who his son is and how we might worship him. Amen? And so we stand here and read his word and his revelation, and I'm thankful for it. So I've already mentioned this church in Corinth is in Transition, and this letter was written within 25 years of the death and resurrection of Christ. The gospel is just beginning to spread to the ends of the earth, and it comes to Corinth around 50 AD. Paul writes this letter just a couple years after that. And so here's a brand new church, brand new church. And what do we need to know about Corinth? Corinth was a Roman colony. It was pluralistic, pagan, and sexually pervasive. And these new Christians are trying to figure out what it means to live lives that are all about him in the midst of this culture. A church in transition for sure. And pretty much the whole letter is Paul taking these Christians as a spiritual father to the woodshed and laying them over his knee and giving them a good old-fashioned spanking. All right, I don't know if you've read 1 Corinthians, but that's what Paul does. 
Chapter after chapter, Paul corrects, admonishes, rebukes, even mocks, and teaches in a loving and a direct way like a dad would right after his son does something really, really dumb. And I know a little bit about that as a young man. Everything from, it was just, just chaos. Everything from gossip to division to sexual immorality to treating pastors like celebrities and playing favorites to drunkenness to not confronting sin to suing each other to an unloving spirit taking communion flippantly and the list goes on. Chapter after chapter, Paul corrects lovingly and directly all throughout the letter. And then we finally get to here to to chapter 15. And we come to find out that these Corinthians, they're falling prey to a cultural misunderstanding of the bodily resurrection of Christ. They're straying away from the historical truth of the gospel. Paul writes to them about the gospel in these first 11 verses. And this church is reminded in these first verses of the gospel, the exact thing a church in transition needs, to be reminded of what matters most, Christ. And so with that, let's dig in. The first thing that we see here in these first 11 verses of chapter 15, my first point is the gospel is an announcement. The gospel is an announcement. The word gospel means good news. And the term is taken from the world of war and battle. It's a military term. Its original use was to refer to heralds, ambassadors, messengers that would bring good news of a military victory from the battlefield back to the capital city and to proclaim this to the people. And these these heralds would rush back to the city and enjoy. They would announce to the people that the battle has been won. They would announce victory, and there would be citywide celebration. And as I was thinking about this, I, I thought of that iconic picture from back in World War II, right? We have it right here. Throw that up. Yeah, that sailor kissing that nurse. You guys know when this is from? This is on the day that it was announced that Japan surrendered, and World War II was over. VJ Day, Victory Over Japan Day. And look at the celebration going on here. I mean, beyond the sailor kissing the nurse, who knows if they're dating or married or who knows? Probably like, war is over, find the first gal I can and just give her a big old kiss, right? And look at these guys in the background, it's kind of left, laughing. That's Times Square. Do you know that? Where's the cars? Where's the cars? The whole street's flooded with people. No cars, right? Packed out. You notice on the ground, confetti, paper, people throwing things in the air, celebrating. Why? The war is over. Good news. It reminded me of another picture and another scene here. Go ahead and throw that up. Yeah, we got that, right? That's from the the 2005 world champion White Sox. That's victory, good news, celebration. Then we have this. That's not good news. That's not good news at all. That's bad news right there. Yeah, that's a false gospel. That's... That's not victory at all. I thought I'd just mark my territory right away. Just let you guys know where I'm at. Just, I'm bearing it all right here. Go White Sox. Go White Sox. <laughs> yeah. All right, try to get that out of your head. Just erase that. Friends, the gospel is an announcement. It's good news of a victory that has been won by God through Christ. A victory over our greatest enemies of sin, Satan, and death through the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ is a victory won by Christ on behalf of sinners. And all the sinners said, amen, amen, a victory won. And I found it helpful when talking about gospel to contrast good news of the gospel with this phrase, good advice. The gospel is good news, not good advice. Good news is about something that's already happened. It's already happened. It's already done and there's nothing you can do about it. The only thing left to you now is to respond to this news. Good advice is something altogether different. It has to do with something that is yet to happen. And you can do something about it. You can contribute to the outcome. Good advice in a military context would be leaders, experts, advisors sitting around a war room trying to devise the best plan, the best strategy they can to go fight a battle, to go fight a war, and to hopefully win. We need to get some tanks over here. These guys are going to come in over here. These guys are going to fly in at this time. Trojan horse. Gandalf's going to come running down the mountain. We're going to win the war, hopefully. Right? Good advice. Friends, Jesus offers to us good news. Every other religion in this world offers to us good advice. 
If you want to be loved by God, if you want to make it to heaven, if you want to know your past is forgiven, go here, start doing this, stop doing that, say these prayers, give this amount of money, and get others to do the same. And after you've done all those things, we'll see. Maybe. Friends, the gospel is not good advice. It is good news. It is a good announcement that though we are sinners, completely undeserving, ill-deserving of God's love, Christ fought for and won for us the love, acceptance, forgiveness, and favor of the Father. Victory, good news. It's good news about something that God has done, not good advice about something that we need to do. We just saying the words, it is finished, it is done. And because the gospel is news, because the gospel is announcement, it means it's not a fable or philosophy or merely a theology. It is historical fact that this battle was fought for and won in front of a whole slew of witnesses. Look at what Paul does here in verses 4 to 6. He says that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the Old Testament scriptures. They speak of the gospel as well, the death and resurrection of Christ. It's being fulfilled. And he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Do you know what Paul's doing here? First, he's writing within the lifetime of these 500 witnesses. Do you know what you do to build a legend? Do you know what you do to build a story and fabricate? You wait till all the witnesses are dead and gone. Then you write whatever you want. And you embellish, right? And you, the guy that was six feet tall becomes eight feet tall. And, and he killed two guys and he killed 20,000 guys. And you embellish. Friends, the gospel is not a story. It is not an announcement like that. Paul writes public letters within the lifetime of the witnesses. And the gospel spreads and is not stopped because it is fact It is history. You know what Paul is saying here? He's saying he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Go talk to them. Go talk to them. Paul's in Ephesus. I kind of imagine like if we had Facebook or email or travel well, he's like, hey, Corinth, you guys, next time you're in Jerusalem, I'll get you set up a lunch appointment with a witness. You can sit down and talk to them. I got some friends there. You can go talk to them. This is amazing. Friends, the gospel spread like wildfire in Jerusalem because Christ's enemies couldn't produce a body. They couldn't produce a body. And if they would have, the whole movement would have been squashed. But it wasn't squashed. It spread to the ends of the earth and is spreading to the ends of the earth because Jesus Christ really rose from the dead. The gospel is news. It is an announcement. Jesus is a real person that really came, that really lived, that really died, that really rose again, that really ascended to the Father's right hand where he is right now, who is really interceding on our behalf and is really coming back again. Victory, friends. Good news. Good news. Amen. So the gospel is an announcement. The gospel is also theological. The gospel is also theological. What I mean by theological is that the gospel is jam-packed with rich revealed truths about the nature and character of God and rich revealed truths about what this gospel, what this death, burial, and resurrection has accomplished for us. Look at how Paul summarizes the gospel here in verses 3 to 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance... Not second, third, fourth, 1A, 1B, first importance. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul summarizes the gospel here, and he centers the gospel, this good news, on the finished work of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. So let's examine this summarized statement here of the gospel in a theological light, in a theological lens. Christ died for our sins, was buried, and was raised again. First word of the gospel, Christ. Christ. Who is Jesus? Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God come down to be with us. God in the flesh, who lived the life you and I are living right now. He lived in this world with all of its temptations. He was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15. He lived a life of full and complete obedience in relationship with the Father and fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law. Simply put, Jesus lived the life we couldn't. Jesus lived the life we couldn't. He lived the life the first Adam couldn't. He lived the life that Israel couldn't. And he lived the life that none of us could. Sinless, spotless, 
son. Next, Paul says that this sinless, spotless, without blemish son died for our sins. Romans 6.23 says this, the wages or the penalty of sin is what? Death. And God declares a sentence of death on all who have sinned. And that sentence, that declaration, that judgment is an expression of his righteousness, of his justice, and of his holiness. God hates sin. His anger and his wrath burn towards sin. And as sinners, this is the divine dilemma that we find ourselves in. Our sin demands payment and it demands justice. And how will we ever pay? How will we ever pay? How will we ever satisfy God's righteous anger? And this is the point of the story where some offer good advice. Be a good person. Be religious. Do good to others. Attend church. Don't sin. Obey God. And they put it on you. And they put it on us. Here's what you need to do. Friends, that's good advice. And in the face of this terror, this holy terror that we find ourselves in as sinners, God offers to us good news. And we can never match up. And we can never do good enough. None of it will do. All of our deeds, all of our righteousness is all dismissed. God is not impressed by our church attendance or our piety or our holiness. None of it. In fact, one of the most offensive things to God is thinking that we can produce a righteousness on our own and we don't need his. Look at Jesus in his life on earth. Some of the harshest words that Jesus has is for the religious guys who think they're good and they don't need the righteousness of God. That's for all these other people, not for me. And Jesus has harsh words with them. So what hope do we have? What hope do we have? And friends, to come and see that in the gospel, the one that's been offended, the one who is angry, the one who, is, who has wrath toward us and who has declared a sentence of judgment upon us does not turn his back on us like we've turned our back on him. He came. And the one offended is the one who does the hard work of salvation. God, in his great love for us, while we were still sinners, offers to us good news. We deserve death, but Christ died. The righteous in place of the unrighteous. In our place as a substitute, the sinless son absorbs the wrath of God and pays the penalty of our sin. Our sin, which was our responsibility. Your sin, which was your responsibility. Jesus comes and takes it upon himself. This is amazing. Friend. Amen. Hoot, holler, victory, friends. Jesus does this. At the cross, the father pours out his judgment and wrath upon his own son for the sins of the whole world. And so sufficient and so valuable was this payment that it satisfied the wrath of God, absorbed it. In Christ, the righteous requirement of the law is satisfied. God's wrath is satisfied. And the proof, the proof that Jesus is who he is and that he accomplished all that he set out to accomplish is the resurrection. And Paul gets to that now in the next phrase of his his summary. Christ was raised on the third day. You know, if Christ stays dead... If Christ stays in the tomb, the wage is not paid, friends. And Jesus was not the sinless son of God like he claimed to be. He was a sinner like you and I, deserving to die like you and I. And look at what Paul says in, in later on in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. We need the resurrection because the resurrection is the proof that Jesus accomplished all he set out to do. And we know, friends, that Christ did rise from the dead. Proof that he was the eternal son of God. And proof that the price was paid. This is victory. Jesus came to do what we could never do. And now by faith in Christ, God offers to all who would repent of sin. Turn from sin and trust in him. Forgiveness of sins. The righteousness of Christ. We received his righteousness. We receive a reconciled, renewed relationship with the father. Where he covenants with us where he enters into a binding relationship with us, where he promises to never leave us and never forsake us, and the secure hope of eternal life. Friends, this is the good news. And this kind of love is unheard of. This kind of love is unheard of. Amazing grace for sure. The benefits of the gospel, friends, are vast, vast. An ocean of gospel realities are there for those who trust in Christ. I just want to just give you a summary. Here's just a few. Look at this. We see union with Christ. 
where God unites us to himself, he unites us to Christ, receiving all the benefits of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And all these things flow from union with Christ. Justification. God declares us legally righteous. He takes our sin, throws it on Christ, takes the righteousness of Christ, puts it on us, and declares us righteous. Nothing we've done. It's all Christ. Sanctification. He conforms us to the image of his son. Continually and fully one day when we see him. Adoption. He welcomes us as sons and daughters into his family. Orphans of this world. who We've been, we've been running off in this world worshiping lesser gods. Right? Orphans of this world. He's received us into his family as his own sons and daughters in Christ. Reconciliation. He restores our fellowship with the Father. Brings us into a renewed relationship with him. Washing all of our sin that has defiled us and made us dirty and unclean and the shame and the conscious of defiled conscious. He makes us clean and he washes us. Redemption. We were in a pit of sin and despair and in a desperate sinful state and he comes and buys us out of that pit. Purchase. He makes us his own. Wedding. He creates a new covenant with us, his bride. And he's the bridegroom who promises never to leave us and never forsake us. Liberation. He sets us free. Right? From the law of sin and death. My chains are gone. I've been set free. We just sang that. New birth. Dead, dead sinners. Spiritually dead, Paul says in Ephesians 2. Hearts of stone that don't beat at all. God comes and quickens us. Makes us alive. Gives us hearts that beat. Makes us alive and makes us new. Illumination. Paul says in Ephesians, we are darkened in our understanding. We were just living life however we wanted to do. We had no idea who God is. God came and revealed himself to us that we might know his love, know of his holiness, and know of this good news. New creation. He gives us new identity. New creatures in Christ. Resurrection. The promise of eternal life. New life and new bodies in the future. Friends, do you find yourself with your hearts strengthen here as we talk about this? This is what Christ has won for us. In this victory, this is ours in Christ. This is who we are. The gospel is theological. Deep, deep wells of truth. The gospel is theological. It's also personal. The gospel is profoundly personal. Look at what Paul says here. First two verses. The gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Two verses, eight times, the word you comes up. Eight times. At this point, I need to say that the gospel is not about us, but friends, it is for us. It is for any who would believe. And that belief, that belief in the gospel, it needs to be deeply, deeply personal. It must not just be a mere assent to the truth of the gospel. It ought to go deep down into our hearts, deep down into the core and the fabric of who we are. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are not just merely historical events or theological truths that we stand back at a distance and look at through a glass case as if it were an artifact left over from some historical event, some piece of paper sitting in a museum collecting dust. And some of us treat the gospel like that. We know it's true, and we come in week in and week out on Sunday, and we tip our caps to it, and we simply acknowledge it, but it stays there. Just true. You could pass a test on it, but it's not gripped your heart. You've not embraced it fully with the very fabric of your being. God did not go through all the trouble of coming, living, dying, rising on our behalf, and working in our lives in such a way to make us alive that we might tip our caps or simply acknowledge him. God sent Christ to rescue you, to suffer in your place, to reconcile you to the Father, to forgive your sin. The late John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, and this is a phenomenal book. I recommend it to you, but a quote from there that's always stuck with me on this point. He said this, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it was something done by us. The gospel is for us. He came to rescue us. He came for you. So how are you responding to this news? How have you embraced the news of this victory? Are you living in the joy and the freedom of the gospel? Or are you peering at the gospel through a glass case? You could pass a test on it. You tip your cap to it. You acknowledge it as true. You might even have a little conversation about it, but it's not gripped your heart. It's not gone down into the fabric of who you are. 
There's a big difference between acknowledging the gospel is true versus a heart that is dominated by it. And I pray that for all of us, that we would grow, grow in that. The gospel is profoundly personal. And I would suggest to all of us that the gospel is all we need. The gospel is all that we need. Notice starting in verse 1. Follow along here. This is great. Check this out. The gospel is all we need. Look at this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I preach to you, which you received, past tense. The gospel is that thing that saves us, justifies us, reconciles us, and gives us a position, a holy position before the Father, where we receive the righteousness of Christ and we're saved. Right? You received it, past tense. It saves. And then he says, it's in which you stand, perfect tense, present. The gospel is sustaining you. We're standing in it. We believed it and we continue to believe it and it continues to sustain us. And by which you're being saved. Present tense, continual. It is changing us. Do you see that? The gospel is for our past, for our present, and for our future. Now when it says here that by which you're being saved, Paul's not talking about our justification here. He's talking about that present progressive reality of the gospel in our lives. That it is changing us. It is the thing that is conforming us ever more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Paul here shows us the massive scope of the gospel. And he tells us that the gospel is all we need for our past, for our present, for our future. The gospel is all we need to save us and sustain us and sanctify us and to secure for us a hope, the hope of our future. Gospels, friends, this truth is profound. It's profound. And friends, we need to realize that the gospel... The gospel does not exhaust its resources at conversion. The gospel does not cease to work after we become Christians. It continues to work and will continue to work and is yet to be done in our lives when Christ comes back and we see him as he is and we're we're totally changed and fully realize this work that Christ has done in us. The gospel is so much more, friends, than something that gets you to heaven Listen to this quote by a guy named Milton Vincent in a book called The Gospel Primer. He says this, It is a costly mistake made by Christians who view the gospel as something that has fully served out its purpose the moment they believe in Jesus for salvation. Not knowing what to do with the gospel once they are saved, they lay it aside soon after conversion so they can move on to bigger and better things. God did not give us his gospel just so we can embrace it and be converted. Actually, he offers it to us every day as a gift that keeps on giving to us everything that we need for life and for godliness. The wise believer learns this truth early and becomes proficient in extracting available benefits from the gospel each day. We extract these benefits by being absorbed in the gospel, speaking it to ourselves when necessary, and daring to reckon it true in all that we do. Daring to reckon it true in all that we do. Guys, I'm just going to give you a quick glimpse into my own heart where I needed the gospel this morning. Coming over here, I want you all to like me, frankly. And I want to do a good job. And I want nice things to be said of me. I didn't want to come up here and fumble over my words and be an idiot. And this guy, I can't believe they picked this guy. And Right? And so there's all this kind of fear kind of working in my heart, right, this morning. You know what I needed to do? I was putting on on display your opinion of me. Your opinion of me. You know what I needed to do? I needed to remember Christ who died on my behalf to secure for me the opinion of the Father. That's my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And that He has spoken me of me acceptance, love, forgiveness. I love you. And that trumps everything. That trumps it all. Right? That doesn't mean I don't care about you. I care about you guys. Think about me. What I'm saying is... That I need the gospel this morning. I need to be reminded of my acceptance in, in, in Christ with the Father. You know, on this point, do you guys know where the first commandment in the book of Romans comes in? First commandment in the book of Romans. <clears throat> the first commandment in the book of Romans comes in chapter 6, verse 11. Why? Why a commandment later after six chapters? Because the gospel is not about what we need to do. It's about what Christ has done. And for six chapters, Paul's talking about what Christ has done for us. And in 6.11, here's the first commandment. And this is what he says. So you also must consider, reckon, believe it to be true. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You know what Paul's doing here? It's not, hey, go do something. Believe. Trust. Reckon. Consider. Believe the work of the gospel in your life. 
That's the first commandment in the book of Romans. Trust. Believe what God's done for you in Christ. Not first go and do. First believe. Consider it so. Believe it to be true. The Christian life is a daily battle to believe the gospel. A daily battle. And here's just a few where I've found just some benefits here from the gospel on a daily basis. The gospel is the truth that is constantly daily reminding us that God loves us because of Christ, not on the basis of our performance. Do you find yourself working hard, falling in and out of favor with God? One day God hates you, the other day God loves you, right? You fall in and out of despair and joy, high, real high highs, real low lows. Maybe you're focusing on your own performance and not Christ's performance on your behalf. He accepts us in Christ. It is the truth that is constantly, daily, drawing us out of hiding and shame and fear and back into the joy of our relationship with Him. It is the truth that is constantly, daily, pushing back against the lies of our own hearts. It is the truth that is constantly, daily, proving to us that Jesus is a better Savior filled with a world of idols. It is the truth that is constantly, daily, speaking into and shaping the way that I interact with others. We saw that last week. Welcome one another. Why? Because Christ has welcomed you. That's why. It is the truth that is constantly, daily, softening our all-too-often hardened hearts, causing us to humbly love Him and love others. It is the truth that is constantly, daily, causing us to look forward to the hope of His return when the gospel's work will be finally realized and Christ will be worshipped by all. This is the gospel, friends. We need nothing else. It's all we need. And it's a daily need. A daily need. Last point. The gospel is... A daily need. Look at this very first sentence. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I don't know if you've ever noticed this at all, but have you ever noticed how all Paul's letters are written to Christians? All of Paul's letters are written to churches, to Christians. And yet Paul writes at length and depth about the gospel and its implications in their lives and in the life of the church. Why does Paul do that? Why does Paul continue to make known the gospel to people who already know it? And some of you might be sitting here thinking like, why is this guy preaching the gospel? Like, does he think we're like all like need to be saved or something? Like, you know, like you all need to be converted, you know, like it's just a merger, man. No one's doubting your salvation, you know, it's it's not that at all. Why, why, Why? Why? Why is Paul doing this? Why is he constantly writing about the gospel to people that already know it. It goes back to that, the gospel you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. We need the gospel daily because Christ all too easily becomes familiar to us. All too easily our hearts grow dull to the truth of who Jesus is. Are you with me on that? Is anybody in here a dull heart? Yeah? All too easily. I don't know about you, but I don't wake up every day praising Christ. Right? I don't wake up every day thinking gospel thoughts, waking up singing Amazing Grace, all right? I wake up a selfish sinner. And I don't know if pastors are supposed to confess that, especially on the first week, but there you go. That's me. That's me. I get out of bed a selfish sinner. And gospel thinking does not come natural to me. You know what comes natural to me? Pride, greed, lies, the flesh, self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, self-justification, shame, guilt, and hiding. These are the things that come natural and easy to me. And I don't think I'm alone here in this place. These are the things that come natural. And because of that, I need to be reminded of the gospel daily. I need to be reminded of who Christ is on a daily basis. Now, my wife Pam and I, we are uh, parents to three kids. Six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old. And here's what's cool. Here's what's crazy about parenting, right? You know, on Facebook, they make these like e-cards. Have you noticed these things? And you can make your own and kind of type your own thing. So anyways, on Facebook, there's this one. It was this mom. And she was like hunched over over the side of this chair. And her face was like buried in her arm like this. And you can tell she's just like giving up on life, right? And it says in the caption, living with a four-year-old is like playing a game of 21 questions. 1,532,266 times in a row. (laughs) And his mom is just like, oh my gosh. Can I just have a conversation with an adult? And all the moms said, amen, right? You know this. As parents, we are constantly reminding and being reminded. Constantly reminding and being reminded. Our, Our kids can't just ask and tell once. They need to ask and tell like a million times. And kids are so smart. 
On Friday night, you can tell a kid just something just to get him to bed. And the next day he wakes up like, Dad, remember that thing you said? When are we going to do that thing? You know, and it's like, oh, my gosh, I thought he'd sleep. Would he'd forget and he didn't forget. And oh, man, you like wake up to when are we going to play that game on the iPad? And <clears throat> in the same way, parents, you know this. I mean, if you followed my family around with a camera crew, you would hear the same things over and over again throughout the whole day. Use your inside voice. Get in the van. We pee in the potty, not our pants. Leave your sister alone. Flush the toilet. Stop. No. Are you kidding me? Right? Constant same phrases over and over again. Guys, transition serious here, huh? When it comes to the gospel, we're exactly like a four-year-old. Constantly need to be reminded of Christ and all that he's accomplished for us. And Paul knew this. That's why he sets out in all of his letters to preach the gospel, to remind us of the gospel, to remind us of the gospel's implication in our lives. Luther knew this as well. You guys have heard of Martin Luther. Check out what he says. The truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine, of first importance, is what he's saying. Most necessary is that we know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. Right? I need that. I need the gospel beat into my thick skull and preach to my hard heart. I need the gospel. I need the gospel beat into my head. Friends, it takes a lifetime to get the gospel. And we never grow beyond it. We never grow beyond it. We only grow into a deeper and broader understanding of it. And we grow into a richer understanding of its truths and its depths. Listen to Keller on this. He says this. It is not accurate to think the gospel is what saves non-Christians and then what matures Christians is trying hard to live according to biblical principles. It is more accurate to say that we are saved by believing the gospel and then we are transformed, sanctified in every part of our mind, heart, and life by believing the gospel more and more deeply as our life goes on. That is the task of sanctification, growing in a deeper understanding of who we are in Christ and what he's done for us. The gospel is all we need, friends. It is a daily need, and it meets all of our needs. And because the gospel is all these things and more, it's of first importance. It's it's of first importance, and it's extremely relevant for us today. So what can you expect from me as a campus pastor here? You can expect from me, by God's grace, by God's grace, to lead and love well, to the end that we all grow in a deeper understanding of the gospel and that we live lives that are all about him. That's what I want. That's what I want in my life. That's what I want in your all's lives. And in order for that to happen, we all need to be reminded of the gospel. We need to be reminded of the gospel. And that's what you're going to hear from me. You're going to hear this from me, the gospel. I am not going to point to myself. I'm going to point to Christ. Week in and week out from the front in one-on-one conversations, in grief, in struggling with sin, in struggling with the merger, in our successes, in our joys, at funerals, at weddings, on back decks, and late night conversations, in my weaknesses, and in my faults. The gospel, this campus desperately needs it, you need it, and Cedar Lake needs it. Amen? Amen. So what I want to do now is I want to close out to talking with you guys about the gospel in my life. And with this, we'll close. Um, I really appreciate the last part of Paul's letter there because he starts, to talk, he starts to talk about how God's grace in his life is not in vain. And he says, um, uh, I became an apostle. And he says, I'm the least of the apostles because I persecuted the church. And Paul's a very unlikely candidate to now be a herald, a messenger of the gospel, right? The guy that used to kill, murder, capture Christians and, and oppose the church is now the one preaching the gospel that advances the church. And then he talks about how he kind of came on, he kind of came on to the apostles and that whole crew there, kind of like in a, in a very weird way. You know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I was abnormally born. What he means is I didn't come on like the rest of these guys. Christ appeared to me individually. I went years without meeting the apostles. I'm just kind of a different case. And because of that, I'm the least of the apostles, he says. But he says God's grace to him was not in vain. And I want to share with you guys how God's grace in my life was not in vain. And this is the point where I start telling my story and I start getting teary-eyed. So you just need to embrace yourself for that. So if the message has been boring up until this point, at least you can stick around and say you saw a tattooed guy cry. And um, that might be enough for some of you. Who knows? But I want to share two, just two important moments in my life. 
One is when uh, God called me to himself, and the other was when God called me into ministry. And what you guys need to know is I grew up in a, I grew up in a Christian home. My parents were here in the 9 o'clock. They live in Cedar Lake. And I grew up witnessing and being parented in a, in a home that had authentic faith. My parents were not perfect at all, but they loved God, and uh, they did their best. And I saw, I saw my dad um, having small groups of guys over in, in, in the basement. I saw him at family parties witnessing and sharing Christ. I saw my mom doing the same. And so I grew up with authentic Christianity. I also grew up in a church, Awanas, got saved every year at church camp, made promises to Jesus every year at church camp. I've gotten saved like a million times. I don't quote me on that as that's my like view on salvation, but um, it's once, it's once for all. God does that work. Um, but it, it was just kind of all these, all these promises and all these, these moments. And by the time I was 20 years old, Man, my life was just a disaster. A disaster. And uh, and I was just, I was bound and wrapped in sin. And I loved sin. I loved sin. And I knew the truth and I could spit and I can share you a million verses. But there was no fruit at all in my life. And I suppressed the truth of Christ so I can have all these things in my life. I remember this one moment where it was an old youth pastor um, Don Helton, Bill Hill, Don knows him uh, very well. And some of you guys might know Don. But anyways, Don came when I was a senior in high school. And uh, he would come and meet with me in my basement and try to, I don't know, get me to read the Bible and love God. And he was just done. I was just showing no fruit at all, no repentance. And I wasn't ashamed of it at all. And at this one point, Don's like, man, you're not even a Christian. And I'm wasting my time here. And I was like, don't tell me I'm not a Christian. Jesus Christ died in my place for my sins, rose again, and my trust and my confidence is in him alone and nothing else. What do you do with that? You know, what do you, what do, you do with that? I was that guy. I had a ton of knowledge, but my heart loved sin. And I was suppressing Christ and I was pushing him away. And I just remember just one summer night in 2000, we lived in Cedar Lake at the time, and uh, I was driving home, and God just began to just break me down. Like, break me down. David says in the Psalms that God's head, hand was heavy pressed upon me. And God started to apply this spiritual pressure to my mind and to my heart. And before it was a voice that I could just suppress, but this was just, it was coming hard, and I could not suppress this voice. And I became overwhelmed with just a terrible fear. And God's saying these words to me, I don't know you and you don't know me. And you are not one of my own. And you are not a Christian. And I pulled up into my parents' driveway, and I'm just sitting there in my truck. I'm just tears flowing from my eyes. Worse than this. Worse than this. Weeping like a baby in my driveway in Cedar Lake. And I just remember just God in that moment showing me all these things that I had loved over and above him for years. Things that I had pushed him away for and things that I had pursued and loved and worshipped instead of him. And he showed me the futility of all these things. Friends, girlfriends, parties, the acceptance of, of, of people, all these kinds of being cool, all that. And all that just faded and fell to the ground and was shown for the futility of what it is. And in that moment, he showed me. In that moment, he showed me the, the treasure of Christ, the beauty of Jesus above all that, all that. And in seeing Christ, all this stuff just faded. And it was just like, man, this stuff is worthless. And Christ, you are worthy of my trust and my love and my worship. And I said moments in that driveway I never said before. I said, God, take it all. Take it all. And that just, man, my life just started to change. I started going back to the same places I was, sitting in basements, partying, guys over here, talking how I would normally talk, telling jokes, how I would normally tell jokes, doing things I would normally do. And I'm just sitting there like an alien in this basement. Is this how I talk? Is this what I laugh at? Is this what I do? These are my friends. And God just started to show me just the futility of all those things. And in that, I started just to turn from those things. I started getting involved at Bethel Church. We were going to Bethel at the time. We had just moved into that um, location there on, on Broadway. And then I went from sitting in the back row, hungover, passed out, not caring who saw me. I just did not care. The only reason I was at church was because I was dating a deacon's daughter and uh, I was just, I was, I was just, I was a punk. I was a punk. 
And I went from that to Bible open, third row, eyes glued on Steve, highlighting stuff in my Bible, and God started to do a great work in my life. And more and more opportunities started to come for me to share my testimony, to, to teach and to preach and, and, and get involved with uh, Don and the youth group and lead uh, 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 high school Bible studies. And I was sharing the gospel at work. And it's all, this, all this fruit, all this change started happening in my life. And I met Pam at that time, and God saved her as well, and uh, she's got a story of her own. And I remember um, this one moment, Pam and I were leading a small group, um, leading a small group, and it was great. It was in our first year of marriage, and God was just doing a, a ton. We had a, a brand new couple that came. They were new Christians, um, and uh, uh, I had a friend, Paul, who was a youth pastor at the time. He said, hey, I want to bring my, my students down uh, to get around you, to hear you teach, and do like a spiritual retreat kind of a thing. I said, awesome. We had a 1,200-square-foot house, Cedar Lake, no basement at all. It was on the south side of the lake, and we crammed these kids in like sardines. And they were just running all over. My house was trashed after that, but it was awesome. And for two days, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, um, I taught on the book of Galatians. And we sang songs, and we went deep in the weeds with kids on, on sexual sin and, and struggling in homes. And, and there was tears, and there was, there was worship, and there was ministry. And I was right in the thick of it all. And I remember um, Saturday night when everybody went to bed, I could not go to sleep. I could not go to sleep. And I'm sitting in my driveway in Cedar Lake. And I just had this overwhelming sense, this overwhelming sense from God that he gave to me, just a passion that burned in my heart. I said, I want to do this. I want to do this with my life. And I had no idea what was going to happen from that. But I I prayed these words, God, here's my life. Take it. Do whatever you want with it. Do whatever you want with it. And I have no idea what I was praying that day, but here I stand, it's eight, nine years later, on a platform in Cedar Lake as a campus pastor. And that... God, God saved me in a driveway in Cedar Lake, and he called me in a ministry in a driveway in Cedar Lake. So if you're here running from God, do not hang out in driveways in Cedar Lake. You will become a pastor, and you will be miserable. Um, <clears throat> guys, I'm just floored. I'm floored by what God has done in my life and is doing in this church. And I'm glad to be a part of it with you guys. And I love my story. I love sharing it. But my story pales in comparison to God's story, the story of how he's rescued us in Christ. The gospel is not about us. It's for us. It's about Jesus. And it's his amazing grace. His story is grand. Our stories are just a small piece of what he's doing in this world. And I look forward to seeing what God is going to do at this campus in Southwest Lake County through us all and in us all. Pray with me. God, thank you for today. Thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for this moment. And um, God, we are in awe of your grace. We're in awe of your love. We're in awe of how you've loved us and called us to yourself. And God, I pray for that person in here with a hard heart who's just suppressing the truth, who's suppressing the truth of who you are, is suppressing the gospel in their life. And God, I just pray that you would just work in their lives like you worked in all of our lives. God, all of us can line up on this platform, share stories and shed tears. And it all points to you, God. It points to none of us. It points to you. And so God, thank you for your amazing grace. You have loved a world undeserving of your love. And the one who has been hurt and offended and sinned against came for and did the hard work to rescue us. God, you are amazing and your love is amazing and your grace is too. We pray and worship you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.